and welcome to a holiday episode of the Herbert Smith Freehills Capital Markets Podcast, where we discuss transactional trends through a legal lens. I'm your host for this episode, Yuji Huang, and today I have with me Tom O'Neill, HSF's Head of U.S. Securities, and a very special guest star, Deborah Smith of the IBD Legal Department of Goldman Sachs, and longtime denizen of the European and Middle Eastern Capital Markets. Together, we will be reflecting on market trends and legal developments from 2019, looking into our crystal ball for what's in store for 2020, and because this is a holiday episode, sharing a curated gift guide to make holiday buying for all of those people both celebrating and suffering our capital markets a little easier. You may remember that earlier this year, we released a podcast with some of our predictions in the world of capital markets for the year the first episode of a six-part Capital Markets podcast series. One of the trends we predicted was that the equity capital markets, at least in the UK and Europe, would see a lot more secondary activity as opposed to primary issuance activity. Tom, Deborah, have you found that to be the case? Our experience year-to-date, that prediction certainly has been accurate with placings to fund acquisitions, rescue rights issues, and other secondary transactions far outpacing IPO activity, including an impressive volume of block trades towards the end of the year. Primary issuances, particularly in the UK, have been somewhat subdued as expected this year. According to public sources, in the first nine months of 2019, only 24 companies in total floated in the UK, which I understand is a 55% decline compared to the same period in 2018. That said, we would be remiss not to mention that at the time of recording of this podcast, the largest IPO, not just of the year, but ever, priced yesterday. I'm, of course, referring to Saudi Aramco. As of the date of this podcast, we have not said largest international IPO, but the evolution of the public debut of Aramco going forward remains ongoing. So definitely one to watch as we head into 2020. Um, Okay, now I think we've gone about two minutes without mentioning the B word. How much of this subdued level of primary issuance activity is down to Brexit? Look, I think I think it's easy to blame Brexit or should I say the uncertainty over Brexit? And many people do. However, you know, that said, there are other reasons out there. You know, we can look at the low cost of debt financing, the availability of private capital, or just companies choosing to stay private for longer, fears over trade wars or fears of recession, among other systemic or global factors. You know, some people also point to the poor performance of recent floats, particularly at the end of last year in the UK market, although that certainly hasn't been the case across the board. You know, still others point to the relative attractiveness of the U.S. markets due to the deeper sources of capital there, particularly with respect to certain industry sectors. But all that's just to say simply there's no one reason. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily begin with B, although the B word has not helped. Definitely. Now, turning the focus a bit to legal developments, what would you guys point to as noteworthy changes to the legal landscape in the world of capital markets this year? Well, one important development to mention, at least in the UK and European context, is the prospectus regulation, which took full effect in July. So the first point I want to mention on on this is not actually about prospectuses per se. The prospectus regulation broadened the definition of advertisement 
to include communications rather than announcements, as was the case under the old prospectus directive regime. When this first came out, there was some speculation in the market around whether this was meant that advertisements now would include certain bilateral communications like calls or emails. And I think so far, there's a consensus among the industry bodies that the new definition should be interpreted to apply only to a subset of communications that are designed specifically uh, to promote the securities, however. A couple of other points I'd like to mention on the prospectus regulation, more specifically focusing on disclosure. The general disclosure requirement for PR-compliant prospectuses remains broadly as under the directive that a prospectus should contain, quote, the necessary information which is material to an investor for making an informed assessment of, unquote, various matters, including assets, liabilities, profits, and losses of an issuer. Under the PR, however, there is a new requirement that information be written and presented in a, quote, easily analyzable, concise, and comprehensible, unquote, form. Along the same vein, the PR has focused the attention of national competent authorities and therefore of issuers and their advisors on risk factors, which need to be limited to those which are specific to the issuer and the securities and which are material to investment decisions. Mitigating language should not be included and risk factors which serve only as disclaimers should not be included. Yeah, and we are seeing the FCA increasingly focus their comments on the presentation of risk factors, including, as you said, both with respect to their content uh, to implement these principles and the requirement under the PR that their order be prioritized. And this isn't about wholesale change in practice, but we're seeing a trend, which we welcome, towards reducing the length of risk factors and avoiding them being used simply as the dumping ground for all risk disclosure, you know, whether it be large, small, relevant, irrelevant, and all the variants in between. And we should also mention that, although we've touched on a few highlights, the new PR does cover a lot more ground than we have time to discuss here. We actually put out a webinar earlier this year and a series of briefing papers on the PR. If you don't already have those and you want to know more, just write to cmpodcast at hsf.com. Again, that's the letters CM for Capital Markets Podcast, all one word, at hsf.com, and we'll get you all set up. So, so now we saw the prospectus regulation this year. What else is worth noting? One of the more interesting developments in the UK market has been saved up just to the end. We at Herbert Smith Freehills represented Lloyd's Banking Group and several of its directors in their successful defense in the first of its kind shareholder class action in the UK, with the court handing down its lengthy, well-reasoned decision just in November 2019. There is lots to sink your teeth into whether you are a litigator or capital markets participant having to do with basic deal execution and liability issues, which are being voiced through a UK class action for the first time. These have included the sufficiency of disclosure, director's duties, standards of due diligence, reliance, causation, and loss. Really, lots of good stuff here. Yeah, and we're looking at this closely as well and listening to, to HSF's advice on this, giving your lead role there with the defendants. Uh, there's also an interesting exercise which we're considering going forward as to wh whether any of our existing execution practices, which are driven in many ways by the US 10b-5 process, will change materially as a result of this. 
Deborah, that is a perfect segue to take us across the pond. Is there anything interesting going on in the U.S. at the moment? <laughs> I think there's quite a bit interesting going on in the U.S. at the moment. But sticking on topic, across the pond, the, uh, the U.S. SEC in June published a long-awaited concept release on private offerings reform, which was then followed by a comment period that ended in September. Uh, much of the concept release was more relevant to the domestic, so the U.S. market, but quite a few areas were possibly of note to foreign private issuers. In particular, the SEC asked whether offers and other offering-related publicity should be deregulated altogether and instead focus more consistently on investor presentations at the time of sale. The staff also asked how secondary markets for private offerings can be made more liquid and also how to make private investment funds more accessible to retail investors. There are a lot of other areas that may be relevant to FPIs, but just to mention a few here. So you mentioned that the comment period ended in September. Um, did anything interesting come out of the comment period comments? Well, specifically on the topics that Deborah just mentioned, there were some letters offering suggestions to harmonize Rule 506B and Rule 506C, some suggestions to reduce the holding period under Rule 144, and potential changes to the qualified purchaser requirements for the relevant exception under the Investment Company Act definition. But it's important to note that although the concept release and comment letters represent the first steps in what may ultimately evolve into significant alterations in the landscape of the U.S. securities laws, these are just the first steps, however interesting to practitioners. Nothing could happen or it may be quite some time before we see any legislative or administrative results. On this topic of reform, moving a bit closer to home again, what have you seen this year on IPO process reform? I, I remember there was a huge focus on that around 18 months ago or so when it first came out. Um, and just to give our listeners a bit of a reminder, recall that in July of last year, the FCA revised rules on the UK IPO process became effective. The principle behind these new rules was to ensure that the IPO prospectus or registration document, i.e. not the analyst research, should form the basis on which investors make their investment decision. In order to achieve this goal, the new rules prohibited analyst research from being published until at least one or seven days after the publication of an approved prospectus. And we say one or seven days, depending on when unconnected analysts were provided access to the issuer's team and information. And unfortunately, the IPO process reform came right before a time when the market saw relatively fewer IPOs come to market. So the new rules, to some extent, are not really as tested in the market as they would have been, perhaps, during a more active period. And to add to that, the handful of IPOs that have come to market since the IPO process reform rules came into play generally offered unconnected analysts access to the issuer's team separately from the connected analysts, meaning that a waiting period of seven days after the prospectus before publication of research was imposed. Yeah, and also take-up by unconnected analysts has been relatively low, which is likely due to commercial considerations. So perhaps this is one to continue to watch next year when we hopefully see more IPO activity. Yeah, I'd definitely say so. So what else is on your radar for next year? Are there any other areas of particular interest? Well, something that we've been following quite closely this year, and again heading back across the pond, is the direct listing structure. 
Spotify used this structure for their IPO in 2018 and Slack again in 2019. So simply put, this type of listing enables a company to become a publicly traded company without participating in an underwritten offering as in a traditional IPO. So there's no capital raise, there's no dilution, there's no lockup. Disclosure requirements do still apply, as well as ongoing public company reporting obligations. And investment banks still tend to be involved, but as financial advisors and not underwriters. So the company still conducts a roadshow, but it's used more for shareholder relationship building as opposed to book building. Yeah, the issues around direct listings were given particular visibility in October at a San Francisco conference hosted by venture capitalist Bill Gurley, where the traditional IPO process was described as putting Silicon Valley investors on the, quote, bad end of a bad joke for about four decades now, unquote. Then in November, the New York Stock Exchange filed proposed rule changes with the SEC that would allow companies to simultaneously direct list and engage in a primary capital raise. This is definitely one to watch for next year. Definitely. But before we pop those corks and ring in 2020, we have to get through the holidays. What do you get that special capital markets person in your life? We understand it's difficult shopping for the person who has everything except free time, who you don't see very often, let alone talk to. To make the holidays a little easier this year, we canvassed our colleagues and present our curated gift-giving guide. Deborah. What were some of the suggestions that you liked? Well, we had a lot of book suggestions. And I think this is a great call because it's, it's good to mix it up a bit, not just read prospectuses and pitch books all the time. Plus, books are a pretty safe bet if you're shopping for a colleague. And in my view, you can never have too many books. So someone suggested Firefighting, The Financial Crisis and Its Lessons by Ben Bernanke, Timothy Geithner, and Hank Paulson. The title, not to mention the all-star cast of authors, speaks for itself. Another finance-focused book suggested was The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simons Launched the Quant Revolution by Gregory Zuckerman. This one looks inside secretive hedge fund Renaissance Technologies, which is known for hiring physicists, mathematicians, and computer scientists with little knowledge of finance to amass piles of data and build algorithms hunting for deeply hidden patterns in global markets. Reviews of this one have been really positive, and this book was shortlisted for the FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. The 2019 suggestion that I'm actually looking most forward to reading, hint, hint, uh, is The Third Pillar by Raghuram Rajan. So Rajan in this presents a framework for understanding how three key forces, being the economy, society, and the state, interact and argue that economists focus on the market and government while leaving the so-called third pillar of society or social issues to other people is both myopic and dangerous. Rajan offers a way to think about the relationship between the market and society, including building stronger local communities. I have a couple more book ideas to add here, actually. I recently read Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup by John Carreneau in the Wall Street Journal about the Theranos scandal and found it to be really informative and an entertaining read. 
And one of my all-time favorites, Barbarians at the Gate by Brian Burrow and John Hellyer, is a classic and worth a periodic reread, How Investment Banking Has Evolved. Ah, uh, yes, Barbarians at the Gate, an oldie but goodie. Tom, didn't that come out the year you started practicing law? Like I said, there's nothing like an old classic. <laughs> Indeed. Now, another overarching theme that came up in the gift suggestions this year was wellness or fitness-related items. There's been a lot in the legal press about stress in the profession. Not that that's anything new, of course. And some of us could probably use the holidays as a time to remind our favorite capital markets people, whether lawyers or not, to take a little time for themselves. And the difficulty, of course, is how do you carve out that time? I mean, with all the will in the world, getting more sleep or more exercise or being more mindful, it's easier said than done. Do you agree I completely with agree with that, especially when you're trying to balance work with other commitments like family or community involvement. Can't argue with any of that. I, I think the focus should be on making uh, you know, fairly minor changes that are easy to build into one's existing schedule. And actually, some of the gift suggestions we got really fit the bill. Now, something that's been on my list for a while is a spin bike with streaming content so that I can bring the studio cycling experience home. We got one of those last year, and it's great because it just shows you all you need is then 15 minutes. Once it's at home, you, you, you take out the commute. That's a great suggestion. That, that is exactly what I need. I'm just trying to figure out where I would put it. <laughs> and in that same spirit of bringing wellness to you, I'm also a huge fan of meditation apps. A premium subscription to any of the popular ones would make a great gift for anyone who is looking to be a bit more mindful. And let's be honest, can't we all? Yeah, these are great ideas and remind me of another suggestion that I liked. The massage or spa gift card. There are a few providers now that will bring spa treatments to your home, so you can save all that time of actually having to get to the spa. You know, I, I know it's not for everyone, as for some people it's all about being in the spa, you know, away from home or the office and all that, but for just trying to negate some of the damage of sitting at a desk for prolonged periods, one of those traveling massages would really do the trick. Also, and for more of a stocking stuffer type gift, sleep aids, like lavender-based pillow sprays and that sort of thing, that would make a great gift for, t for teams at work. Those are great. I have actually used those and can attest that they work. Um, although I can sleep anytime, anywhere, so I am not the best guinea pig for sleep stuff. <laughs> but now going back to a point we touched on a few minutes ago, the idea of time. I'm pretty sure that if you asked pretty much anyone what they really want for the holidays, so many people would say more time. Now, while we can't do that, did you guys see any suggestions that would help with time saving or just helping us to be a little bit more organized or efficient with our time? Yeah, the new iPhone suggestion is an obvious one in this category. I rely on my phone for pretty much everything I do to stay organized. No, I don't. You, you don't? No, I make lists with an actual pen on actual paper. <laughs> you know, I, I do too, actually, Tom. I bullet journal to stay more organized. So I actually, I might ask for one of those nice notebooks with the thick graph paper for the holidays. I'll just stick to my regular paper and pen. <laughs> okay, you do you, Tom. So what is on your wish list then, if not a very cool notebook? Earlier this year, my nephew gave me some comfortable but fashionable trousers. 
They're made for yoga, but I wear them for long haul travel, particularly to visit our colleagues in Australia. They're from heli something or other. I call them dress joggers. Great capital markets gift. That, that is a great idea if I've ever heard one, Tom. And what about you, Deborah? What is at the top of your list? Well, I think I might have to change it to add dress joggers to the top of my list. Uh, but dress joggers aside, I would say it's definitely something sustainable. So I've tried to make, you know, I made a big push this year to reduce my own carbon footprint. So anything eco-friendly would be a really welcome gift. You know, maybe a set of bamboo cutlery I could bring to work to avoid using plastic takeaway cutlery, or maybe a gift, certi or a gift subscription to a local fruit and veg delivery service. You know, whatever it is, I'm hoping to see gifts under my tree this year that are all locally sourced. Take note, everyone. Well, that is it for our special holiday episode of the HSF Capital Markets Podcast. If you have any topic ideas, please write to us at CM Podcast. Again, that's CM for Capital Markets Podcast, all one word, at hsf.com. Until next time, happy holidays. And see you next year.